following is a message at Living Savior Church in Asheville and Hendersonville, North Carolina. To learn more, go to lsavior.org. As the story goes, there was this man and his wife, and his wife was a worrywart. Night after night, she could hardly sleep, and her specific fear that compounded in her head was that she was worried about a burglar. Night after night, he would say whatever he could. He would try something new. Didn't matter. Day after day, month after month, year after year, she was worried specifically about a burglar. And then suddenly, 10 years later, after all of these sleepless nights, after all of these worrisome evenings, when she wouldn't listen to a thing that he had to say because she was worried, in the middle of the night, he heard a bump. And he went down into the living room to find a burglar. And the husband said, good sir, I'm so glad you are here. I need you to come up and meet my wife immediately. (laughs) Now you might have realized that that's kind of one of those stories that's more of a joke than a story, but as is the case with all jokes, there are a whole lot of truths baked between the layers of that joke story. It leads us to ask things like, okay, uh, the burglar came and you were right, but lady, was it worth it? Like all of those years, a decade worth of worry. Did, did it make you feel better that you thought about it? That you lost all of that sleep? Did it help you at all? Was it to your benefit? Like what did you actually get from it over the span of all of those years? And we might think like a decade's worth is a long measurement, but let's say she even worried about it once. What did that do for her? Aren't those very much related to the questions that our Savior is inviting us to ask? From the gospel reading that you just heard Vicar share earlier from Matthew chapter 6. Jesus has been teaching this famous Sermon on the Mount. It starts off with those famous words, blessed, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth, so on and so forth. And Jesus has all of these profound teachings as he, as the master surgeon, takes the scalpel with every single one of his words to cut through not just some layers of the fat, but to perform surgery on the heart, yes, even the soul. And here he gets to the end of chapter six, and he has something to tell us about what? About worry. And so he says, don't worry. And so is that where I just say amen and we wrap it up? I mean, it's kind of insulting, right, for someone to say don't worry because now we'll stop worrying all of a sudden. It's kind of like telling somebody who's on the verge of tears to not cry or telling a bunch of soccer camp kids that are chuckling to stop laughing. What happens in both of those scenarios? To tell them to stop it just continue, just causes them to all the more. So too, when Jesus tells us to not worry, it's not that easy that you can just not be worrisome anymore. To have no more anxious thoughts and no more fears, like to press the delete button and that's it. Jesus knows very well that that's not how it works with our hearts and our souls. But what he wants to do, in fact, what he does do with his word today is he performs surgery. He enables us to look beneath the surface, to get underneath what is going on as we interact with life in this world, and to understand that the conversation that we have with ourselves and with this world is full of a lot of non-truths, lies. And especially that comes to the foreground when he talks to us about worry. So what you and I are going to see as we dig into Jesus' words today, I invite you to have that open. What you and I are going to see today is that worry is so much more about God than it is about us. Worry worry is so much more about God 
than it is about us. Now, when we talk about worry, there are very much related words. Words like fear and stress and anxiety. And as alluded to at the beginning of the sermon, stress and fear and anxiety and worry aren't the things that are necessarily on decline. In fact, regardless of the metric you would decide to use, whether the metric is the amount of medication that is prescribed for people with anxiety, the ways that people measure and admit to stress, not only in the workplace, but in the home, the number of people, regardless of the surveys that you look at, that would acknowledge that they worry. Even just a few days ago, Pastor Zell and I sent out just a quick, brief survey, and we got 70 responses in just a few days. Would it surprise you that well over 75% of those responses acknowledge that they not only sometimes worry, but they all worry quite a bit. That's no surprise at all. You take any of those metrics, any of that data, and you compare what the world looks like today versus 5, 15, 25 years ago, and regardless of the data that you look at, we can only conclude that worry and anxiety, as one author put it, is the common trend among all Americans. But recognize what Jesus is talking about here is he's not criticizing things that we might classify as emotional or even psychological worry or anxiety. I, I talked to somebody who battles clinical, clinically diagnosed anxiety and takes medication for it. And I've talked with this individual a lot about their fears and their worries. And, and the way that this individual put it this last week when I called him up and just said, can, can you tell me about this? They said, it feels like out of nowhere in the middle of any given day, my head and my heart is put, between, put in a vice grip. And at any moment, at any moment, regardless of the situation, it's not even that there is imminent danger or threat. It feels like the world around me is just compressing and I have no control. I thought, what a challenge to live through that on any given day. Some days better than others, some days worse. What Jesus is talking about here is not meant to dismiss that or to call such things as irrelevant or unimportant. Let that be clear. What Jesus is not prescribing here is a few prayers a day keeps any anxiety medication away. It's not what he's getting at. What he's getting at is that you are not just a body and a mind. You are a soul. And that affects not just who you are, that is part, a, a lot of who you are. And therefore, regardless of what you fear or worry about, regardless of the type of anxiousness that you experience, your Savior gets to the heart of the matter, to your very soul. And he has something to say to inform you about what is really going on in your soul and the lies that we tell ourselves, along with the world, about our worry. So what does our Savior have to teach us as he teaches us that worry is more about him than it has to do about us? Well, look at the first example that he gives. We're going to cover three brief points. He has more control over us than we could ever imagine. His care is deeper than we could ever know. And his comprehensive plan for us is already complete. So what about that control? Look at the first example in the real world that he gives us. Look at the birds. Sure enough, I watched some birds this morning just to make sure that what God says is true. Wink, wink. It's true. Running to and from the nest. We have a nest out in front of, uh, we have this tree right in front of our yard and there's these, there's these tiny little baby birds in there. And as I was walking out early this morning, 
Early bird caught the worm. I really saw it with my own eyes, and there she was. And what does he say? These birds, they don't have to sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. And as Luther's known for saying once, he doesn't just drop the food in their beaks. No, in the seemingly mundane and ordinary aspects of their rituals every day, what does he do? He provides them with opportunities to go and to serve and to work so that they can care for themselves and care for others too. So it is with you. He cares for you. He's in control. I mean, how many of the things that happened yesterday could you have ever imagined 10 years ago? And yet how many of you wonder what your life is going to be like in 10 years from now? But what does it do for you? Isn't part of the, the, the issue with our worry is that we're failing to recognize that what we tell ourselves is really overheard by God above? I mean, think about it this way. We had soccer camp this last week. And it was less about soccer than it was whatever games we could do depending on the weather. You may have experienced that. But when, regardless of whether or not we were indoors or outdoors, there's one thing that must remain the same. Yes, Jesus, but also snacks. I didn't say snack. I said snacks. Little, little Johnny, not his real name, little Johnny comes up to me on Tuesday. Is there going to be enough snacks? Because what he sees is this whole slew of kids glowing in the dark, if it were dark, and one box of snacks. What he didn't know is that that whole room back there was filled with boxes and boxes from donations, thank you, and that giant freezer in the back corner of the kitchen was full of popsicles, and all he could see was one box of popsicles and one box of snacks, and these snacks are being handed out, and he's wondering, is there going to be enough? Now, did I have to take little Johnny by the hand and walk him into the room and say, see these towers of snacks that are bigger than you? See these mountains of popsicles? especially the purple ones? Do you see all of those? No, I didn't. What, what could I tell him? There's enough. And then what could he see? Another one of our kind snack ladies was walking down from the church to the pavilion with another box. And then the big kids came, so of course we had to bring like three boxes. They could have multiple snacks, seconds, and seconds, thirds, and if they were really sneaky, we know who you are, kids, by the way, fourths of popsicles? Oh, I only had three. Uh-huh. I invented that trick. <laughs> there is more than enough. So it is with your God. He doesn't have to open up the curtains that, that unveil his divine will of all the ways that he cares for you, not only today and not only tomorrow, but years and, yes, even decades from now. Doesn't not he care for you more than the birds? And someone, don't take this to say, well, yeah, but there's birds that died. That's not the point that Jesus is saying. There are billions and billions and billions that you could never even see, much less care for. And who does? And God says, on the spectrum of value, you are at the top. He loves you so. Does he not care for every bite that you eat? Does he not care for every second that you live? So what does worrying do for you? There was one scientist who postulated, I don't know how they came up with this data, but that the average American worries about, let's just think of a pie chart, percentage-wise. 40% of their concerns are things that will never happen. If you're starting to feel guilty, you don't have to make eye contact with me. It's okay, because this is me. This is me in a nutshell. I'll admit it. 40% of the things that will never happen. 25% of the things that are also out of their control but may happen. 15% of things related to their health. However, the more you worry and the more you stress about your health, 
does your health improve or not? So that's a problem. And then the remaining sliver is about things that you can actually control today. You don't have to raise your hand, but I will. Does this sound familiar? (laughs) Of all the things that are so out of our control, and what difference does it make? Because by worrying, we're going to actually add increments to our life. I mean, what does Jesus say? Who of you by worrying can add an hour, an inch, a minute to your lifespan? I mean, if worrying did add time to our life, I know some people that would live to 250. <laughs> but that's just not the way that it works. In fact, it serves the opposite. So, so what is the need for that? Is it not that deep inside our hearts there is this tiny little control freak who really is believing the lies that the more I worry about things, the more they are important, the more my life matters, the more other people are important too, and I don't want to forget about them, and in addition to all of those things, then I have to control and worry about how all of those things are going to get taken care of, and all the while, we're not just saying those things to ourselves. that's a lie. It's like there's little thought bubbles going on, and God reads all of them. We, we asked people in the survey that we sent out, if there's anything that wasn't on the previous list, if you'd like to add it, and almost everybody did. And as I looked through all of the things that everybody said, do you know what? I did the math. 90% of the things that they wrote about were things that were out of their control. Now, I must admit to you, that's normal. It's completely normal because the things that are out of your control don't necessarily come to the foreground and hit you in the face unless you are racked with the reality of some kind of fear. In other words, you're not going to worry, you're not going to stress about things that are out of your control unless God enables you to realize that there are a lot of aspects about this lo- the, your life in this world that are out of your control. And so when that happens, of course we're going to worry. All that is to say, this is natural. We might even say that part of living in this world, that, that worry is necessary. But Jesus is not saying that this is not automatic. He does not say that you are dumb or weird for worrying. He just informs you on the right perspective to have and also the right thoughts to think when it comes to your worry. That God is in control, not you. What does he call God over and over again in his words? Your father feeds them, those birds. And are you not worth so much more than they? Your father cares for you. There's not a morsel There's not a bite. There's not a second of your life that happens without your father's deep and compassionate control for you. His control, his care. Look at the next analogy that he uses from this real world in which we live. He says, look at the grass of the field. It doesn't do anything. It, how perfect is the grass as an analogy, by the way, because it is entirely passive. It simply receives. You don't see grass uprooting itself, lifting up its roots like it's some kind of skirt and running over to the water in the creek in order to get a drink and to store away some food for later. This is the stuff of a Disney cartoon. No, the grass simply sits there in dirt that God made ahead of time that it relies upon, relying also on the sun and the, and the rain that it can do nothing to get on its own. And yet, what does he say? It is clothed with the lilies that not even Solomon in all of his splendor can compare to. Do you know who Solomon was? I mean, before there was Gucci or Gap, before there was Louis Vuitton or Lululemon, 
Before there was North Face or Nike, before there was Prada or Adidas, there was Solomon. I'm telling you. Solomon attracted the allurement of distant kings and queens. Even the queen of Sheba, she not only heard about Solomon, she said to herself, I got to go check this guy out. He's not only that wealthy, but also his wardrobe. And Jesus says, not even Solomon in all of his splendor can compare to one of these fields of grass that are adorned with lilies. I mean, you pick up a flower, take a lily, and you look at it closely and inspect it, and what do you see? All of these fibers that come together to make such beautiful and pure colors, the likes of which we could not duplicate if we had all of the raw materials and the greatest biologists and scientists and manufacturers known. You could tell when a flower looks fake. The lilies of the field and Solomon can't compare. And by the way, that stuff is here and then it's burned up and it's gone. How much more will your heavenly father clothe you You have little faith. And what makes faith little, remember, is your faith is only as good as what you have faith in. We talked about that all week with the kids. Our confidence is not great because of how much we muster up our will or our intellect. It's not just sugaring up some kids to get them to yell out a song because that's really what gives them confidence, although sometimes that happens. But really, that's not what confidence is, biblically speaking. Your confidence is only as good as what you have confidence in. So little faith is really what? Looking at ourselves and listening to the world and looking at other people and for what? But great faith rests in the God, your father, who ultimately cares for you. I mean, what is it that we actually get from looking at the world which tries to inform us that we should be dressed better and look better? He says none of that matters compared to what? Lilies of the field. And notice Jesus is talking about bare necessities. He's talking about things like food, clothing, protection, security. But if I were to ask you maybe one more question in a survey, the majority of things that we worry about, are they the bare necessities? Maybe when it comes to relationships and people, but outside of that, so easily it is how we compare with the people we see in life, online, social media, all of the added amenities, not necessities, the added amenities which lead to bills and stressors and frustrations and comparison games and the the keeping up with the Joneses and all of that for what? He says your life is so much more than the sum of your salary and the mathematical average of your accomplishments. Your life is so much more to the God who not only looks at you and controls all things for your good, but he cares for you. He cares for you. It may seem like we're just a blip on the spectrum of all eternity, but your father cannot help but look at you and not only know your name and count the hairs on your head, but clothe you and take care of you with every step that leads to your heavenly home. He cares for you. And it's no different than when you consider the comprehensive plan that he has for you, which is already complete. Jesus goes on to say, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. Some might be tempted to look at those words and think, well, if if I follow Jesus, check a couple Christian boxes, then he's gonna give me everything I want. You know, this is a give to God in order to get from God kind of thing. No, God does not set up spiritual pyramid schemes. 
Seeking first his righteousness, think of what that means for you. It frees you from the rat race of trying to pursue what other people say should be expected of you so that you can find a righteousness outside of you that God gives you by his grace. I'll say that again. It frees you from the rat race of trying to seem more right, more successful, more worthy, more respected according to the changing paradigms of this world. It frees you from that slavery. So instead, you would find yourself at peace, at rest, in the calm presence of your Savior who already loved you by his grace, not on account of what you had done. The righteousness that God gives you is foreign. It is literally outside of you. He didn't ask you if you wanted it ahead of time. He wasn't foreordaining that maybe this is something you might look forward to someday Simply by this love that beats in the heart of God from all eternity, he looked and he saw you and he loved you and he had this wonderful plan to send his son for you who is the righteous one in our place. He lived a life of perfect identity and perfect peace, free from worry, no fretting or stress. So that why? So that his perfect life would even more beautiful than the lilies of the field would would clothe and adorn us so that when God looks at us, He doesn't see us as faithless worriers. He sees us as those who are his children by faith. I mean, look at even Jesus on those last fateful moments. Did he have an opportunity to stress? I mean, let's say you got less than 24 hours before you're going to be nailed to a cross. Um, Your heart rate might be up a little. You might have reason to worry. But what did he pray to his father in that garden? Not my will, but yours be done. Because worry is not, in that moment, Jesus even demonstrated that worry is not about him as he submits himself to his father's will. So it is with you, you children of great faith, because your great faith rests in your Savior. Your faith rests in the Savior who is righteous for you and so you can recognize that worrying tells you that it's about you, that your life is important, that your concerns matter, that you, you, I, I, me, me, us, us. But it's not about us. That's the lie. Instead, in those moments of worries, recognize that everything is about your God who controls all things for your good more than you could ever know who cares for you more deeply than you could ever imagine, and whose comprehensive plan for you, look at Jesus. It's already complete as he's already procured a place with your name on it in heaven. What can worrying do for you then? There was once a shepherd boy on those northern cliffs of Ireland who was tending to his sheep, and there was a tourist. And the tourist looked down over the cliff, and he saw that there was this little ledge, and there were the most beautiful flowers. And he wanted those flowers, and so he tried to pay the shepherd boy to go and get those flowers. And he said, I'll even get a rope. And so the tourist went and got a rope, was going to hold onto the rope so that this shepherd boy could rappel down the cliff to pick up those flowers for this tourist. You might think that's a pretty bold tourist. Well, you know what the shepherd boy did? He said, wait right here. I'll be right back. And he went back, and after a while, he came back, and he took the rope out of that tourist's hands, and he put the rope in the hands of his father. And then he tied that rope around his waist and was willing to do anything, 
with no concern, no weary, no fear at all because his father, his father would never let go. Regardless of how silly that analogy might be, regardless of how off the wall that example might seem, your life rests in your father's hands. And look at the track record that your father has for you as he feeds you, as he clothes you, as he cares for you, as he loves you, as he even gives his own son for you so that you would be his daughter and son and forever and for always he would love to call himself your father. Control. Care. Comprehensive plan that is already complete in your Savior's arms. No need for worry in light of that. Amen. Amen.